Today's episode of Hollywood, How Did You Get Here? is brought to you by G Technologies, a leading storage solution brand for the entertainment industry. Stay tuned for a special offer from G Technology later on in the show. I'd also like to give a special thanks to our lighting sponsor, LedGo Technologies, for supporting our show. On today's episode, I sit down with old friend, legendary visual effects pioneer, Scott Ross, former senior vice president of the LucasArts Entertainment Company and founding member of Digital Domain, one of the world's most awarded effects houses. Scott and I will chat about the early days of VFX and the struggles that took place behind the scenes, as well as his role in creating Digital Domain along with James Cameron and Stan Winston. Interested in getting into the VFX world? Well, listen to what Scott has to say before you make that leap. And we'll also go off book a little and talk about our shared love of rock and roll. So settle in or just keep your eyes on the road. We'll be right back with Scott Ross. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you stopping by. My pleasure, Tim. I appreciate it. All right, so in keeping with the theme of the show on how did you get here, how does a kid from the Bronx end up in the uh, movie business? It was not planned. Nothing, nothing in my life has been planned. Um, and uh, I, I actually really, all I ever wanted to be was a musician. Um, I wanted to be a, a musician ever since I was about 13, 14 years old when I first saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. That was a kicker. Um, but, you know, when I was a little kid, my mother my mother loved films, and she used to take me to the Ward Theater in the Bronx, you know, and uh, and then when I got older and, I, you know, I got into university, it was at the time of the Vietnam War, and so I needed to study something. I thought I was going to study music, but I got into music classes, and all these kids were reading music like it was English, and I couldn't read music because I had no classical musical training. So while I took a class of 16th or 17th century counterpoint harmony, and I failed miserably, and I thought, gosh, I got to figure out something that I can do. And um, I I was not going to be a psychology major because everybody in the world was, but I I needed to do something so I wouldn't be shipped off to Vietnam. So I became a cinema film major at Hofstra University in Hempstead. And that was sort of my entry level into film. And then when I graduated, I wound up um, sort of going back on the music side. So I decided I'd be a jazz musician. I had toured with the Miles Davis band as a sound engineer. And uh, it was the time of Bitches Brew. So I fell in love with jazz and I decided I was gonna learn how to play jazz. So I picked up saxophone and I kept having these dreams that I would be like 40 years old wearing a shiny black suit playing in bar mitzvahs. And, I, and that wasn't what I wanted to be or where I wanted to go. And then one day we were at Stanford, I had moved to California and we were playing in a coffee club and um, this 15 year old African-American kid gets up and calls this tune Donna Lee, which was a serious bebop song. But I knew it in A flat and he of course called it in D flat. And I went, I'm done. So I hung up my horn and until recently just started playing again. And um, I moved to California and I fell into being a sound man. And from being a sound man, I wound up running a company. And then from running a post-production company, I was recruited by Lucasfilm, wound up running Industrial Light and Magic, and ultimately Lucasfilm, and then wound up being the founder, one of the founders of Digital Domain. Well, so that's going to take me, let's take that and move back, is it back 45 years? Uh, Yeah, I guess 45 years ago. Um, 45 years ago was it for me because uh, we're close in age but for me it was a, a big five six year period where visual effects films 
started really coming out every summer big bigger and bigger films we had the star wars series we had indiana jones we had et tron i mean a lot of big vfx types of films and to me that was sort of when the whole vfx thing became so critical to filmmaking Mm -hmm. what was it like back in those earlier days how do you where was the inspiration coming from to figure this out i mean the, the inspiration always comes from the writer um and then ultimately the director you know it's not as like i used to always say you know at best we're putting the arms and the head on mona lisa you know i mean on on the venus de milo we're putting the arms and the head on the venus de milo we didn't actually come up with the concept of creating the Venus de Milo. We're just making something more exciting. And oftentimes it's driven by the creative team on the film. And it was up to us to figure out back then mechanically or, or optically or chemically how to produce the effects that these folks were writing. You know, and it was it was driven by the Lucases and the Spielbergs at that time. So the creativity pushes the technology? Or... Creativity almost always leads the technology. Almost always. It, it's rare when it doesn't. Was there a time? I mean, who was it? Digital domain, or or was it Lucas that invented morphing? That were kind of the first big people to morph. Again, so morphing morphing was a result of Willow, and it was at right. Industrial Light and Magic. But that piece was written into the script of Willow, and so now we had to figure out how to do it. And so as a result, $250,000 later, by the way, we came up with a program that allowed us to morph creatures in Willow. You know, and then five years or three years later, you could buy it for $79.95 on your Macintosh, you know. Yeah, and then five years after that, it, it wouldn't run on your old Macintosh. That's right, that's and right. You'd be, and you'd be done. Um, so I, I, I want uh, another comment, you know, getting back to that golden era. So... A lot of the young folks today, you know, are of the age that they were little kids when that stuff happened, right? And they look at it as, you know, the golden era of, of visual effects. And they, they think of the difficulties from a business perspective and a personal perspective of what's happening today or in the last 15 years or so. And they, they always reference it as the good old days, right? Hmm. Well, in fact, the good old days were not good old days. It was hard. We lost money. We were abused. We worked 18 hours a day, sometimes six or seven days a week. Um, it was the better old days in some ways, but it was never a good old day, particularly speaking from the business part, part of it, having run ILM in the 80s and then Digital Domain in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, it's always been the bad old days or the bad new days. So why split off to digital domain? What was the big issue there? Or why did you move on from ILM? Well, it was at a time in the in the early 90s where um, George was, Lucas, was basically absent from all of Lucasfilm. George had, you know, sort of licked his wounds running away from Howard the Duck and the dysfunction that happened as a result of that. He wound up looking for a person to run Lucasfilm, and there was a person on the board of directors by the name of Doug Norby. And Doug was the chief, had been the chief financial officer of the Syntax Corporation, Syntax Corporation, the people who invented the birth control pill. 
And so you basically had a, what we used to call them as a green eye shade bean counter accountant for a technology slash pharmaceutical company was on the board and and we were, and I wasn't there yet. And George was looking for someone to run the company because George was basically having nothing to do with the company at that time. He wasn't making movies. And um, he was trying to figure out life. You know, he had just gone through a divorce um, and he was wanting to be able to have kids. So he adopted a, a girl. And, um, and so Doug Norby headed up that search. And interestingly enough, at the end of the search, Doug Norby decided that he was the best candidate. And so George placed Doug as the CEO and president of Lucasfilm. So when I was working there, um, I started off, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was running Industrial Light and Magic, and I had turned Industrial Light and Magic from a photo, helped turn from a photochemical company to a digital computer company, and we started making money. As a result of that, Norby and I sort of bounced heads. You know, I just thought he didn't really know what he was doing. And he was, you know, the green eye shade guy and, and wearing, he looked like Mr. Robert Rogers. And, and he just had no panache to lead a company. I had put together a bonus plan for my executives. And I actually had written a macro so that they could place it on their desktop. And every time the monthly financials would come in, they'd be able to you know, plug stuff in and see how well they were gonna do. And it turned out at the end of the year, I think it was in 1991, um, ILM did very, very well. And uh, I went back to this new board of which I wasn't on. And I said to this new board that my guys and gals deserve their bonus. And I was told that the bonus wasn't gonna happen because the rest of the divisions weren't making any money. So my statement was, okay, pay us a little bit now, but pay us later when the company is doing better. And I was told the company is never going to pay it. So at that point, I felt like I just promised these five, six, seven men and women that worked their, you know, backsides off over the year to do some great work that, you know, my my promise was moot. It was I couldn't I couldn't deliver. At which point I got into a quite a bit of an argument with Norby. And ultimately, Norby, I walked into Norby's office and he pulled out a document, which was my walking papers. And he gave me, you know, a nine month severance and um, and said, thank you very much and left. And then directly after that, he called a meeting and all of the employees rebelled. It was covered by the San Francisco Examiner and Chronicle. And George was in L.A. getting a humanitarian award for the Academy Awards, the the Hirschholt Award, and he didn't know about it because he had nothing to do with the company, and people started bombarding George with what's going on, and George didn't know. So when George got back, he fired Norby. And I came forward and said, I know how to run all of the divisions. I've run the divisions that now make money. The entire employee base supports me. You're paying me anyway. Why don't you put me in as the CEO, and we'll see how it goes. And I was told through George's lawyer that I had quit. And since I had quit, I'm not welcome back. So now here I was, and I didn't have a job. And I had a wife and three kids and uh, two cars. <laughs> and as they say, not a pot to piss in. 
So I decided that I would start a, a company that would compete with Industrial Light and Magic, and that's how Digital Domain was born. So you founded and, Digital Domain with uh, James Cameron and Stan Winston. That's correct. That, that's early 90s, I think? It was 1992. 92, yeah, early 90s. Um, I mean, I suppose we could spend the next hour on James Cameron, but I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about Stan Winston. Sure. I think he's sort of the, the unknown on this one. There's a lot of us that know the digital domain story. We all know the James Cameron story. But Stan kind of disappears a little bit in that. What was Stan like? And what was his purpose over there since he was more of a traditional makeup prosthetic artist? You know, I love Stan Winston. And, and you know, I'm still close with his son, Matt. And um, and I miss him. He's, he was a, he was a, you know, we used to call him the rabbi. But what happened was Stan was a guy who was, you know, he grew up, in Virginia and you know he was sort of an overweight kid and not very popular but he was pretty talented and he winds up coming to to the west coast and as a result you know starts to build his life and his career in Hollywood and so Stan was very cognizant of marketing and PR and when ILM and Stan did Jurassic Park as a result of the work in Jurassic Park all of the press was focused on ILM and the computer graphics part of the dinosaurs. And, and Stan actually put in a great deal of work, built incredible animatronic robotic pieces, rubber and giant mechanisms. Um, and, and he was sort of relegated to the back room. Nobody really did, took much interest in that. It was an old technology. You know, it was the early 90s, and, um, and everybody was sort of driven by what this new computer technology was all about. As a result, Stan decided he needed to get into the computer technology CGI business because he saw that maybe his old-fashioned rubber animatronics thing was going to go away. So as Stan would always do, he would always buy top-of-the-line stuff. And since he didn't have anybody on staff supporting or knowledgeable about what to buy, he walked in and he bought the biggest, baddest, nastiest SGI machines, I think there were four of them, um, for a value of over a million dollars. And once he got them there, he didn't realize that he needed all this other stuff and he didn't have people that knew how to utilize that and he didn't have the software. So he, he basically bought this giant boat anchor. So when I contacted or actually when Jim contacted me, Cameron, and, and, and had heard that I was looking to start a new company, Jim called a meeting down in Burbank at his offices at Lightstorm at the time, and Stan winds up showing up to the meeting. You know, and I'm, I'm just a pisher, you know, it's Stan, you know, Jim Cameron's Jim Cameron. Right. And so when Jim Cameron says, hey, by the way, we have a third partner, I hadn't even met Stan, I just knew of him, right? Um, and so I shook his hand and I said, welcome partner. And he said, great. And so, by the way, you're also buying a million dollars worth of gear of mine that you're going to use at digital domain. <laughs> so not only did I get a new partner, I also got a guy that had a million dollar price tag to it. So I had to divert one fifteenth of the $15 million that IBM financed us with to give to Stan to buy his equipment that I didn't want. Why didn't, I mean, why wouldn't you, what was wrong with the equipment at the time? And it, it was, it sounds like it was state of the art for back then. It was too state of the art. It, it actually was, they were machines that in my opinion had serious operating problems. Mm -hmm. They were 
giant refrigerators called onyxes. Um, and um, they were multi-threaded processors. And, uh, you know, we utilized them, but if, if I had my choice, I wouldn't have bought those, those machines like that. I would have, I would have had different servers and, and a sort of a different pipeline. How long before that million dollar investment was outdated? Probably three think, years. Yeah, things moved really fast back then. Yeah, probably three years. You know, I, I, if I remember correctly, we needed to buy um, we needed to buy hard, hard drives for for storage, and I wound up, as I remember, buying I think it was like two point five uh, uh, two point five terabytes of disk storage, and it cost like six hundred thousand dollars. I uh, I know. Don't hold it up. You're gonna break my heart. Yeah. You know, I think I've got a terabyte, a GTEC terabyte. I think was a couple of hundred bucks. That's correct. Yeah. Solid state. Moore's law, baby. Man. Moore's law. Yeah, boy, he got that one right. Yeah. I mean, just talk about Nostradamus when it comes to that yeah. one prediction. I think it's the only law he made. So, but that's a good get, one. Might as well get it right. All right. So, um, what interested me about Stan though was be sort of his. I mean, he was up there with Rick Baker and and and. You know, hell, even Lon Chaney when it come or or John Chambers, the the biggest makeup artist of the time, Correct. and he was working in analog makeup, and you're working in digital makeup. Correct. Was his input creatively different than say even James Cameron? Or I mean, he comes from a how do I make this happen physically to how do I do it with a keyboard? I, I don't think, you know, as, as I recall, Stan had very little creative input into Digital Domain. I mean, the only, the only project that I remember him, well, he, he, was act, he was sort of actively involved with Interview with the Vampire because he wound up through his relationship with the director. The director came to him and then Stan brought me in and then I had a conversation with Neil Jordan and then Neil thought that I was going to be his visual effects supervisor. And I said, well, no, your visual effects supervisor is this guy named Rob Legato. And he said, um, I've never heard of this guy. And I said, well, he's done a lot of TV, but he's great. And that was Legato's first visual effects job in the, in the future film industry. The other, the other project that Stan was more involved with, interestingly enough, was the island of, the, of Dr. Moreau. And... Um, yeah. He was very involved with the concept of, because Jim at the time was, Cameron was very, very um, excited about motion capture. And so we decided that with Stan's input that we would use motion capture to capture the moves of and, and leaps of, uh, of a Bengal tiger, which we would then apply to a CG person that would be one of these creatures. And unfortunately, it didn't work very well. So Stan's active involvement in digital domain was very, very limited. And after 1998, when Stan and Jim left the company, um, they continued to hold their stock, but they were not involved in the company whatsoever. There was a major blow up. And, and so after 1998, he wasn't involved at all in anything. And what was, what was the major blow up? Was that... I mean, it, the digital world or the VFX world, in, from what I can tell, 
is a financial house of cards. And Correct. it's the foundation. It's getting, the effects are getting better and better. The storylines are getting better and better. It's being done better and better. But the foundation to support it is weak financially. Was most of the issues at Digital Domain at that time financial? Was there ever a time when the money was just flowing in? I mean, Titanic made $2 billion plus dollars. So th this is a long conversation. I'll try to minimize. There are several questions you have there. One question is, why does the visual effects industry, why has the visual effects industry and continue to be um, just uh, uh, not a money-making proposition, considering the fact that the budgets and visual effects are huge and that considering the fact that today um, with an international box office, um, that it's the probably the most critical part of a blockbuster movie's success, as opposed to let's say the actors. You know, mm -hmm. the days of the superstar actors to carry box office is sort of gone, and the new star is visual effects. And the reason why it is is because nowadays domestic box office is maybe forty percent or thirty-five percent of overall box office, while international box office is makes up the, the majority of, of revenue. And so given cultural issues and, and language issues and all of that, visual images become the new language of international box office. And so if you can create things that people have never seen before, that really excites international box office. So in, visual effects is the star of the new cinema. The problem is, is that well, I'll get back to that. So the problem with, with Jim was when the company was formed, we had what was known as an operating committee. And the operating committee seemed like a really good idea in the beginning because the fear of the three of us was that with IBM being a co-partner and owning 50% of the company, that they would force us to do things that we wouldn't want to do, like use IBM equipment or whatever. Mm -hmm. So one of the conditions in forming the company as there was going to be an operating committee. And the operating committee was comprised of Jim, Stan, and Scott. And the three of us would make decisions on almost every issue facing the company, except for super issues that would have to go to the board. Following? Yep. All right. So what would happen is every time there'd be an operating committee meeting called, Oftentimes it would be canceled because Jim was doing something or Stan was doing. This was not their main business. Jim was making movies. Stan was running a creature shop, right? When we would have meetings, the meetings would always fall into, you know, Hollywood discussions like, hey, did you see the hot new actress and so and so? Or what did you think of Brian De Palma's film? We would never really address digital domain issues because they didn't know. They weren't involved. So when Titanic hit, um, a lot of things, there were lots of problems with Titanic. One of the biggest problems was, as I used to say, I ran this giant baking, bake shop, which was I had these ovens and I had flour and I had water and I had bakers, but I couldn't make bread unless the eggs showed up. And the eggs were cut sequences that the filmmaker would turn over to us so we knew exactly what we were doing. You can't do visual effects until you have cut sequences available so you know what it is you're doing. The movie was supposed to open on July 2nd. Jim was still shooting in June. So 
I had these ovens burning and bakers standing by. I couldn't make bread. I couldn't get stuff done. So I went back to Jim and I said, hey, listen, you're not going to hit your release date. You have, to, you have to move your date. And he went kerfluey, right? Well, it turns out that actually, in retrospect, the moving of the date was the greatest thing that ever happened because he held number one box office from November when it opened all the way until you know April or May of the following year. But he positioned it that the reason he couldn't open his film was all because of digital domain. Now, normally speaking, I would have the ability to talk to the head of the studio, but because it was Jim's film, and the, 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 the operating committee, two votes to one, said I couldn't go to the studio. So Jim was our representative to the studio. When all was said and done, Jim felt that um, I should no longer be the CEO of the company, that I should be, he should be the C, Stan should be the E, and I should be the O, and that I was told that I needed to go hire a president. Is this boring? No, no, I, I didn't actually this, know this. Okay, with you? Still hang, yeah, All right. no. So now I do an international search to find a president because I have to listen to what the operating committee is saying. It's sort of like my board of directors. So I started interviewing people around the world. I come up with three candidates, and now we have a board meeting, a full board meeting, three IBM guys, three Cox guys, and the three of us. And we sit down, and as we always do, Jim starts the meeting because he's the chairman of the board. I'd like to call this meeting to order, and I'd like to turn the meeting over to Scott because he doesn't know what's going on. He can't talk to anything. So I open the meeting with, well, you know, the operating committee has – decided that they need to find a new president, that I'll no longer be the president, and that Jim and Stan and I will be the C, E, and the O. And the Cox and IBM guys go nuts. What the hell are you talking about? At that meeting, it's decided by the, by the decision of the other six members that not only will I be the CEO, but I'll be the chairman, right? And so now Jim basically throws his jacket over his shoulder, quotes a line from Titanic, and says, <laughs> gentlemen, it's indeed been an honor and privilege playing with you, and walks out. And then Stan looks around and goes, me too, and he walks out. And that's the last I hear or see of them. The next time I see Stan Winston is at his funeral, when they're throwing dirt on his, on his grave. And the next time I hear from Stan Winston is three months before he dies, screaming, I need to sell the company. I never speak to or hear from Jim Cameron again until I write him a note about three years ago. And that was, was that the last time? That was the last time. I spoke to him last summer. It wasn't pleasant. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing, my note to Jim was, hey, listen, you know, I'm sorry it worked out the way it worked out. Congratulations on all the success you've had and the wonderful work that, that your wife and you are doing to save our planet. And, um, you know, it's too bad that, you know, we couldn't make it all work, but, you know, God bless. And his response was, um, thank you for saying that. I hope you're doing well. Click. You know, the, the, the one thing I haven't personally forgiven Mr. Cameron for was 3D. What a pain in the ass that was for my life. And I was never a huge fan of it. But the whole he turned the whole world onto 3D. And right. everybody wow. tried to follow. That's right. And it didn't work. I nope. mean, it, it didn't work. That's um, right. And you know, 
hey, I was working for a camera manufacturer at the time and it meant two cameras for every one and that was fine. But honestly, my love of film died right. away that time. Every summer blockbuster that I would look forward to would be this 3D thing done, poorly projected or not done well or not serving the story at all, just sure. being, you know, I do love special effects films, but right. unless the effect serves the story, I don't see the point. Mm -hmm. Unless it's, you know, 15 minutes at Captain EO back in the day at, in Disneyland, where sure. you were wowed by the effect and the music and all that kind of stuff. But it just didn't do much for moving the story forward to me. Um, honestly, I don't know if I can point to too many 3D films that I liked any better than 2D films um you know and you and i met in china at a mm -hmm. film festival and i don't even remember do you remember how many years ago that was 10 at least i 11. was there i was there to speak about the transition or the democratization of cinema because the company i was working for was starting to produce really high quality images at a very inexpensive price on a camera mm -hmm. and i did a presentation on what this was going to do to the industry and in retrospect, I got it all wrong. Right. Um, I knew in some ways it did work in the documentary world. It certainly was wonderful for what it was able to do in the indie world, which is still my favorite world for filmmakers. It did wonderful things, but it never translated it to the Cineplex. Mm -hmm. You know, inexpensive cameras just didn't, nobody cared about. They still, it's still not that big a deal to be, price point is still not that big an issue on a major production. Correct. They've got, you know, they got money to burn and they're renting anyway. Sure. So, you know, so it wasn't really that kind of a thing to have an inexpensive camera. Um, and I got it wrong. You were there to talk about how the world was starting to gravitate towards filmmaking in Asia. Mm -hmm. Did you get it right? No. Um, I've since given a couple of talks. I, I, I headed up a SIGGRAPH conference in Asia. I guess it must have been in Shenzhen maybe seven years ago or so. And I... I, I gave a talk about um, can China ever become Hollywood? And, and the answer was no. The Chinese didn't want to hear that. that so that's an interesting thing. You never want to be in China. It's something I learned. You never want to be in China and ever bring bad news about the Chinese, ever, right? That you become persona non grata. The, if you're in China and you want to talk about China, it better be all positive news. But... Um, Chinese cinema, in so many ways, and their, their fundamental storytelling sensibilities is very different than the West. And so it's going to be difficult for a Western audience to ever really embrace Chinese cinema. Now, you know, clearly Chinese, Chinese filmmaking, there, there are always exceptions to the rule, but Chinese filmmaking um, has grown. Their, their technical capabilities have grown. Um, but their storytelling still is very Chinese. And um, there are a lot of Chinese people. So if you really want to focus on uh, uh, cinema as a business in China, um, no problem. But the Chinese, and I met with a lot of people, you know, government people and, and military people, the Chinese looked at cinema, interestingly enough, as propaganda. And they felt that the reason why America had reached its global heights, funny that we're saying it now, but the reason that America had, had become sort of the standard culture bearer of the world was because of Hollywood. 
And so they felt that they needed to bring Chinese stories and Chinese sensibilities and like America did and deliver it to the world and that they would be recognized as a world power, et cetera. And it just can't happen. But I don't think they were wrong about that. I mean, I think the, the concept is correct. I think the world sees us through our cinema. I mean, you've traveled everywhere and you could say something like Sepulveda Boulevard and somebody in in Greece has heard of that street because it was in a movie once. Sure. It, it, it doesn't translate the same way. I mean, I keep thinking about when I'm old and retired, I can leave L.A., but every time I turn on the TV, I'm going to be right back there again, you know, and I'm still going to go, look, you can't take that route to get to the beach. It would take all day. Right. But the, it, the, I think what China was trying to do, if I remember from way back when, was sort of change the way people perceived China. Correct. They wanted the rest of the world to have a positive view of China which is truly propaganda when you get right down to it. But, um, and I don't, I don't think they did it because I haven't seen a Chinese movie um, that, that was a hit over here. You know, I mean, there's, there's well, Chinese... the ones that they, and the ones that they quote are actually not Chinese movies, you know, whether it's crouching tiger, hidden dragon or Mulan, they're, they're not Chinese movies because Chinese storytelling is totally different than Western storytelling. Mm -hmm. Chinese characters are totally different than Western characters. So, you know, when I watched The Great Wall, I, I, I thought it was a joke. And, and they tried to be able to do it in a way where they would bring on Western stars and Western visual effects company. ILM did the visual effects mm -hmm. and Matt Damon was the star of the movie. And they figured, well, if we, if we now intertwine those two cultures, it's gonna work. Well. No, it's not going to work because your story is still a Chinese story, which to the Western world sort of falls flat. Yeah. And now in the States here, we're because China is such an enormous market financially. I think we're shifting the way we make films, especially the blockbusters, to the point where there's 10 minutes of dialogue and 90 minutes of chase scenes so that nothing has to be translated. You're kind of in these stories on some of these things. Because that's such a huge market over there. That's right, exactly. And they right. can't be left out. That's right. I don't, you know, that sort of takes me back to what I said before my love of independent film. Because there's still films there. There's still, not that I dislike the summer blockbuster, I do go for entertainment, but it's not necessarily for the art of it, you know. And so the funny the part is, I, I don't go for the entertainment. I don't even go. So I have no interest. I've never seen a Marvel film, ever. I have no interest. <laughs> Never seen one. Probably never will. A cinematographer friend posted the other day, name a famous movie that, you, that you're ashamed to admit you didn't see. And right. you start, and these are people in the industry, big cinematographers, and they would start listing, you know, it could have been something from the 50s. You know, it could have been anything. I put down Avatar because I've never actually right. seen it. Um, I remember trying to see it. I remember the lines. I rem the story never got me that much that I wanted to go see Pocahontas in space. Right. It it was I knew it was an effects thing that I wanted to see. Plus, I was in the industry and everybody was talking about it. But every time I went, the line was around the block, and I just went and saw something else. Right. And to this day, I don't think I've ever seen it. And but I've seen so many clips, I feel like I have, but I don't think I, I've actually ever. Well, seen you probably it. haven't missed much. the The thing about the the thing about Avatar that blew me away was um, the work that that Weta did. It wasn't the story. It wasn't the acting. It was the work that Weta did, and, and, and I saw it for that. But yeah. most films, you know, I'm, I'm watching independent films or, 
I'm, you know, I'm trying to watch comedies nowadays, though it seems like all the good comedies happened in the 80s. Um, but, you know, that's about it. I mean, it's 2020, so we're all watching everything we can suck in. <laughs> right. You know, I'm, I'm running out of internet at this point. That's right. Um, but I have found myself gravitated towards comedies and films that take place somewhere else in the world. You know, anything that can transport me out of my house or out of my state or out of my country just for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, and to take it back, you know, I think Europe actually did a decent job communicating what it was like Italian films have a feel of Italy China didn't do that the States has done it absolutely some French films and some Italian films clearly um, yeah, New England to New England to a point but the differences are subtle um, so I mean other countries did what China was trying to do yeah but there's the China, I mean as and you know you've traveled a bunch too China is like Mars it, it's a totally different culture. Everything about it is almost 180 degrees off of a Western culture. So, you know, Italy, France, Spain, to an extent, Germany, definitely England, you know, South America, it's all sort of a Western romantic sensibility, right? But China is Mars. It's just a different place with different sensibilities. And no value judgment there. It's just no. different. Yeah, but I mean, I've walked the streets of Rome and felt like maybe I was walking through a Sophia Loren film. Yeah. I did not feel like I was in Kung Fu Panda when I was in China. You know, I mean, or Mulan or yeah. any of those films. I don't think they've done it successfully. And But you had said there's a lot of people there. Maybe they don't have to. Maybe they can have an enormously successful industry and just keep it inside China. I, I, I think it's more than they don't have to. I, I don't think they can. I mean, again, it's it, there's there's I'll give you an example. I play jazz saxophone. I took a lesson from a guy named Jimmy Jiffrey in New York years ago. Great, great, great jazz musician. And in the class, there were five other people. I was probably in my early 20s. And there was a young woman there. She was probably 35 or something, 33. And um, she was Korean. And she played violin. And she played first chair in the New York Opera Orchestra. So we're talking serious musician, right? She couldn't understand the concept of syncopation. Just couldn't do it. It was ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. She couldn't get ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. She couldn't swing, right? And she would read music like a MF. You know, she was unbelievable, like a robot. She could not swing. Chinese can't swing Western ways. Different strokes. All right, yeah. this is good. This is good timing. Okay, because I have to take a break. All right. And typically, for the people who listen to the show, we usually go to the break and then we come back with something we call um, tools of the trade, and we get geeky and talk about cameras and lenses and all that. I'm going to take a pass on that. Yeah. Timing wise, I think this is perfect. When we come back, we're going to talk about rock and roll, and oh. take a little bit of a break because I need it, and <laughs> you're the guy I want to talk to about it. So Thanks. we will be right back with Scott Ross, and we'll discuss those guitars on his wall. Come on back, everybody. This week's episode of Hollywood, How Did You Get Here? is brought to you by G-Technology. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has offered affordable, reliable, high-performance hard drives. This week, in collaboration with G-Technology, we're offering listeners of this podcast 10% off G-Technology drives when you shop at filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code HOLLYWOOD when you purchase a G-Technology drive on filmtools.com. 
That's H-O-L-L-Y-W-O-O-D to get 10% off G Technology drives from Film Tools. So if you're in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to Film Tools and use code Hollywood at checkout to get 10% off your next G Technology drive purchase. And now back to the show. All right, we are back with Scott Ross. Um, Scott, a couple things before we jump into rock and roll. Um, I'm still confused as to how the VFX industry, the special effects industry, moves forward and makes any money. Um, is there anybody rallying for profit participation? Or, I mean, it's an industry where every 25 minutes you've got to spend another million dollars for the newest, hottest piece of technology or a new processor i mean it's it's not it's not like writing writing word on an old computer and you can kind of get through it it's constantly needs money you know if you if you look at the harvard business and uh school analysis of what a profitable business should be comprised of visual effects has almost all of the the criteria so it's huge barriers to entry um technically you know advanced um a limited number of talented people uh, adds incredible value to a, a ginormous industry. You would think that it would make a whole bunch of money. The problem is, is the way it's been structured. So the way it's structured is basically contract-based uh, where you quote a price for all of the work and it's like dealing with a, it's like dealing with a, a, a contractor who can't, really change give you change orders mm -hmm. so you have a you know you're building this house you think it's a five bedroom house with blah 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 and then it turns out it's a 14 bedroom house or the windows need to be a certain type of window and it's it's almost impossible to go back to the client the studio in this case and say oh by the way you didn't ask for and the reason it's impossible or almost impossible is there are only five clients so and those five clients while they're competitive they all talk and so they have meetings once a month the heads of post-production and visual effects would get together and talk about the major visual effects companies and it's sort of collusion in a way where if they have a bad experience and a bad experience could be the person the, the company didn't perform or that they're asking for more money because the change orders are through the roof and the director's a madman, um, they, they will re could really harm the visual effects facility by, in that conversation. Additionally, you, you know, visual effects companies have all of the responsibility and none of the authority. So we're not making any changes or doing anything that's not directed by the director. But we have all of the financial responsibility because we gave a bid of $5 million, $10 million, $15 million. And then the release date could change. So there's so many moving parts that we have no control over. The visual effects facility has no control over. And we're bidding against everybody else based on price. And, and because, and I use this analogy, it's like, it's like you're an airline and you have 500 airplanes. And the price you need to charge per seat to break even is $100 a seat. Well, if you can't get $100 a seat, you're not going to keep your planes on the ground because the planes need mechanics and fuel. So what you have to do is, uh, okay, $80 a seat. So you take a $20 loss per seat. 
And then the next guy says 80 because he's afraid that he's not going to get worth $78. And ultimately, you wind up, you know, sort of it's a giant swim to the bottom of the ocean. Additionally, traditionally, there have not been an opportunity for you to negotiate um, any participation, any back end. Right. That's um, what I was thinking is how is it not built into it for profit participation? If you're going to well, gamble. Well, because the studio and the director say, screw you. You know, if you, so what's your price and this is the delivery date and here's the, and then you say, well, you know, we're willing to, we, we'd be really like to take some back end profit participation. Well, generally speaking, they'll just discount it immediately. No, no, because no. Additionally, sometimes they'll say, okay, okay, but now you have to discount your price by 25%. So we'll give you some upside possibly, right? But since you're not in control of the movie, you're not writing it, you're not directing it, you're not cutting it, you're not composing to it, you're not shooting it, you have no real input into whether or not this movie is going to be successful. So it's basically going to Vegas and rolling the dice. So you're already taking a cut in what your quote would be, which you're already probably close to zero margin or 15% margin anyway. So now it's a double banger, right? The only time you actually can pull this off is when you have a director that is um, in, your, in your favor. So, in fact, I was able to pull that off on Titanic. Because of your relationship with James? Well, because Jim, Jim sort of screwed us on our pricing on Titanic. And so he came back to me and said, uh, first of all, he, he came to me and he said, by the way, the budget on the visual effects on this movie is $18 million. And I said, and you would know that because? And he said, because that's the price we put in to get the movie greenlit. And I said, well, let us take a look at it. And I came back and our price was $26 million. And he said, well, I can't, you can't do it for 26, it's gotta be 18. We said, well, we can't do it for 18. He said, I tell you what, if you're not gonna do it for 18, I'll take it to ILM, they'll do it for 18. Well, now the chairman of the company who also is an owner, now is taking the work that Digital Domain can't do to our biggest competitor at the time, and that can't happen. So I went back to the board and said, what do I do? And the board said, take it, but see if you can get something out of them. So what I got out of them was two things. One was um, he would give us 2% adjusted gross coming off of his director's gross, and he would give us this new movie that he had written that he would name Digital Domain as the product, one of the production companies on, and that I would be listed as a producer, and that movie was Avatar. So I accepted it, and we went forward, and we were way, way, way over budget and lost a whole bunch of money as a result of it, but I still had the two points adjusted gross. When I got the, 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 the sheet describing what the participation sheet, they showed that the company had, that the movie had lost money, right? Which is- What are you talking about, a, Titanic or hard Avatar? Thing to do, hard thing to do on Titanic. Yeah, I mean, but it, Two billion plus dollars, I think. And I think they're so, lying about that. Yeah, so what they then did was, there was a point in time where Jim was now well over budget on the front page of every of the trades was the was the Titanic watch. And um, I believe it was 
Peter Chernin flew down to Rosarita and said, Jim, you can't continue to do this. It's driving us crazy. That ultimately drove the Paramount deal, which 20th Century Fox made a deal with Paramount for they took domestic distribution. That was the greatest deal Paramount ever did. And Jim said, if you don't like what I'm doing, fire me. Well, you can't fire, you know, an Alan yeah. Smith movie. And so Jim then said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to um, forego my uh, producer's fee. I'm going to forego my writer's fee. I'm going to forego my back-end fee. I'll just take my director's fee because I'm over budget. The person in charge of business affairs was... Um, Victoria Rossellina, Rossellini, and she forgot to paper it. So now Jim and I wind up going to an event in New York at the Tavern on the Green, and he gets an award by the New York Times, I think it was, for you know an artist putting his soul where it needs to be. Titanic's now a big hit. And unilaterally, 20th Century Fox decides that they're going to reinstate all of his back-end participation, which ultimately winds up putting us in the hole where we don't get anything. So I threaten a lawsuit. And they come back and they say, you know, if you, if you try to sue me, um, you'll never work in this business again. You'll never work for Fox again. And I said, do you promise? Because I don't <laughs> work for Fox again. And they said, no, you don't understand. Well, I said, listen, bring it on. You know, you, we're gonna, I'm gonna have a class action suit I'm going to call Leo and I'm going to call the rest of the stars in the movie that have back end because you just made a decision that hurt everybody that benefited you and Jim. And they said, okay, I tell you what, what if we bring you a movie called Day After Tomorrow? And I said, okay, we'll do Day After Tomorrow. He said, so you can have Day After Tomorrow, but you have to drop any lawsuit. I said, no, I'll do Day After Tomorrow. At the end of Day After Tomorrow, if you don't like our work, We'll never work again together, but I'm not giving up my my possibility of suing you. So we do day after tomorrow. And then they come back and they say, well, that was a good experience. You know, would you would you give up your 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 chance to sue us if we gave you iRobot? I said, no, we'll still sue you um, if you don't make things right. But we'll do. I, so we do iRobot. We get nominated for an Academy Award. Um, and then they come back and they say, this is silly, let's just settle. And so they settled for an amount I can't disclose to you, but it was nowhere near the amount that we should have gotten. And so instead of losing lots of millions of dollars, we just lost a few million dollars. Mm -hmm. well, and Jim and I had the falling out, and so we took Avatar to Weta. Well, I mean, Titanic in like you mentioned Leo DiCaprio. I mean, obviously he's one of the big stars of the film, but the biggest star in that movie... Uh -huh. is the boat it's the ship yeah and, as i like to say and it's you a sunk it. love story with a with a bunch of great visual effects rob legato was a genius is a genius yeah i've actually gotten to work with him on a couple things and i really really guy. enjoy him and his kid michael uh, Man, great right. people yeah michael's gonna be every bit of what his dad was smart yeah. guy smart guy um and i think he subscribes to this so i'm glad i threw that out there um but the ship itself is the character i mean it's you sank that ship. If yeah. that ship didn't sink, there's no Titanic. It's so, just a bad love story. Yeah, and it's also a true story. I mean, right. fictionalized true story. Right. But it's not like we didn't know the ship was going to sink. 
Right. And you still had to make it exciting to do that. Same with, with what Ron Howard did on Apollo 13 or, right. you know, I mean, we knew they were coming back, but if right. you didn't make it so believable, you didn't put us either in the, in the spaceship or on the boat, there's no movie. That's right. And so, I mean, you know, I just don't understand how there isn't a way. I mean, you were digital domain. Which was so, the so here's, a, here's, house. A great, here's a great, great story. So we're at the Visual Effects Society's annual production symposium. And that was the year that Gravity came out. Same and way. on the panel is, um, is the producers of Gravity, one of which actually was Chris DeFaria, who at the time was the head of Warner Brothers post-production, I guess, or visual effects. And so DeFaria is listed as a producer. And I get up and, you know, because that's who I am. And I get up, I raise my hand. I said, Chris, um, I watched the movie. The movie was really interesting. Uh, I have no idea why the stars of the movie made all of that money. Sandy, what's her name? Uh, Bullock. 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 Mm -hmm. She made something like $62 million with back-end participation. Mm -hmm. I said, I looked at the number of minutes where the it was all about Framestore and all about the work that was done by Framestore. And in fact, you don't have a movie without Framestore. And I looked at the credits, I think there were 1,300 Framestore artists on the film. Why didn't Framestore get any back end? And his response was, because Framestore doesn't have an agent. So the reason why Sandy got, Sandra Bullock got what she got was because she has an agent. And her agent pressed us to get, you know, back-end participation in the film. But Framestore doesn't have that. So they were just paid. So that's another reason. There is no mechanism to be able to bring to the table the incredible value that visual effects artists have um, on a film. You know, you talk about Gravity, I think. So the year that Gravity came out, there was the American Society of Cinematographer Awards, and I think you were there. Mm -hmm. And that film was shot by Chivo, Emmanuel yeah. Besky. Spectacular cinematographer, spectacular human being, one of my favorite people, and one of my favorite cinematographers. Right. So for that particular award show, uh, we had a table of 10. I invited um, an astronaut who I had worked with on a film called A Beautiful Planet. Her name was Marsha Ivins, five-time shuttle pilot. And Chiva wins. Gravity is the big film that year. There's an astronaut sitting at the table to the left of me. She wants to meet Chivo. She's seen the movie. She wants to meet Chivo. And I thought, this should be interesting. Sure. All she did was complain about the diaper. You know, about not, about the, where, not wearing, uh, the, about Sandra Bullock's wearing like boy shorts or whatever underwear she had instead of a diaper. Right. Everything. She goes, you got the helmet right. That's what the helmets look like. Right. But why no diaper? <laughs> that, all the money that went into that, all the to get the heads up display to have those little astronauts, those little puppets fly through space, and all the real Somebody astronaut wants to talk about is a diaper. So, yeah, you know, yeah but she's it, she's probably one of fifty people in the world that noticed it. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. act. You know, how many female astronauts have? You know, she's a five-time shuttle pilot. She's a unique right. person, and uh, quite a lady actually. It was it was interesting. But yeah, she just, and Chivo just had a sort of a blank look on his face. <laughs> it's like, 
wasn't a decision he made, but he uh, says, I was just the DP. You should have talked to, you know, where's the wardrobe person, yeah, you know, the diapers the in focus, design. the lighting is perfect. The story was good. So, but yeah, that was funny. And at the time I had no idea how much money she'd made on that. I, oh, yeah. I, I think I've stopped, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's a great film. Yeah. Um, but, and she carries it to her, to her movie, but wow, that's a lot of money. So, all right. So the real reason I invited you here is rock and roll. That's what I want to talk about for a couple minutes. Right. That's how we're going to bring this show out. All right. So this is a passion for you. And I have over the years come to the idea that you and I have a very similar vinyl collection. Um, if you're ever writing a will, just I'll yeah. pick 20, 20. Let me pick 20. T-I-M-O-T-H-Y. Right. I'll, I'll send it to you. And I'll even come to Santa Barbara and paw through them. Um, what would be, of all the conference, uh, of all the concerts you've been to, which is a lot. I mean, it seems like you've devoted your personal life to seeing shows. What's the best band you've ever seen? What's the best concert or the most enjoyable concert you've ever been to? Can I list three? Yeah, go ahead. Five? Yeah. Um, you know, there are some super standout ones that have become really, really famous. You know, I've, I've been lucky to be in the. I'm like sort of like Chauncey Gardner of the rock and roll world, you know? Um, so I was at the last waltz, which is, you know, it's like in terms of ridiculous concerts, that was that's right up there. Um, I was at live at the Fillmore East for the Allman Brothers Band, um, and that was just blow away. Um, I saw Prince about, I'm gonna say, ten years ago at the three one two one Club in Las Vegas. The show started at like midnight and it went till five in the morning holy cow i mean it was it was just mind-blowing how incredibly talented he was and the band was just wow and it was on there was like i don't know i'm gonna say 500 people in the audience it was a small club in a hotel in vegas um i i saw and i didn't know i was going to see them you know that's always an interesting thing where you go to see somebody or some bodies and somebody there's an opening act and it's holy crap. So I went to over 4th of July weekend, I guess it was in 1969 to the Newport jazz festival. And they just started having rock and roll. And I went to go see BB King and the opening act was Led Zeppelin. And that just, I mean, I, I walked away like, my, my mouth was open as how great they were. Led Zeppelin uh, open for B.B. King. That's an interesting billing. B.B. King, yeah. yeah. And then this was not a concert. This was just an experience that I had. I wound up in a recording studio playing cowbell for Jimi Hendrix on Stonefree. So I spent the whole day in a recording studio in New York with Hendrix. And that that's like top of the pops um, more cowbell means a whole different thing for me now <laughs> jeez i'm never I'm jimmy Hendrix. i've actually now i'm in a different room but uh it's the only actual poster i own and framed huh. my wife hates it um because she's younger than me but i have this enormous poster of hendrix that um i tried to get my son into hendrix he was very much into miles davis um but wow. um and i tried to give him dylan and hendrix and he got there to a point but uh well, that's really pretty, sure. pretty esoteric stuff for a, for a kid to be into Miles. You know? Oh, when he was, 
think 16. He asked for a Miles Davis tattoo for Christmas. You know, I toured, which we didn't let him do. You knew that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose we could go down that road for a little bit. Um, what was he like? Uh, for very good reason, he was a major racist. Um, he did not like white people at all. Uh, he also he also didn't like. I traveled on a bus with that band, right? So we did a whole sort of northeastern tour. The band was uh, rotating between Chick and Keith on piano, um, Michael Henderson on bass, Ayrto on percussion, Flora Parim uh, as a singer. Um, Gary Bartz as a saxophone and Jack DeJanette as the drummer. It was the Bitches Brew band. So it would have been 1970, 71, somewhere around there. And um, I, I started getting into jazz at that point. And so I would try to have conversations with him. And he, he just didn't want to talk about, first of all, he didn't want to talk to me. Um, but when you're on a bus for that period of time, you know, you'll, you'll have a conversation. And he just didn't want to talk about music. He wanted to talk about price fighting. Um, I, I saved him from hitting somebody one day. We, we played the Daughters of the American Revolution Hall and the DAR, you know who they are, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the DAR came by and they wanted to meet this Miles Davis. You know what? Let's back that up. I, I know who they are. Uh, <laughs> well, the but all of a sudden it's just us. Are, are, the, are the, the women who, whose ancestors fought in the revolution or came over on the Mayflower and, you know, sort of the aristocracy of America, generally now known as Republicans. And, um, and they were all like in their 70s and they had like blue hair. Right. And it, it was 1970 or 71. And um, I was the person in charge of making sure that uh, Miles's trumpets were always safe. So I had a, an orange trumpet and a green trumpet and I would always carry them. And so I was walking with him and somebody told him that he needed to be able to go speak to these women. And so we walk into a room and these sort of dinosaur women, Miles is dressed in yellow leather pants, Lucite heeled boots, you know, like big purple sunglasses, you know, totally looking like the king of cool. And he walked in and, you know, they were shocked, you know, because um, what, what was the name of the great uh, soprano, Leontine Price? Years before, these same people refused to have Leontine Price sing in Constitution Hall because she was black. So when they met Miles, they just couldn't believe And And somebody said the N-word. And I thought Miles was going to pick up the trumpet and slam her in the head. And I had to hold on to the trumpet. And he said, wait, F you, I'm, I'm out of here. And he walked in, you know, we played that night. And Yeah, he was a wild guy. Have you, did, you, did you ever work on any kind of musical documentaries? Or is there any, I mean, I probably should go to your IMDb on this one, but. I, I haven't, you know, which is my wife keeps saying that I should really start doing documentaries on musicians that are really important that nobody knows yeah i the first sort of major project that i had anything to do with was a doc on the band the runaways jerry curry lita ford vicky blue sandy west and so on it was the unglossed over version before the dakota fanning film uh -huh. um and that was like a huge thrill for me all of a sudden it was 
that was the one where it's hard to kind of get lost in the viewfinder mm. where when you're shooting you kind of you have your eye to the cup and you're sort of just watching it you're not participating right. it's different though when like Alita Ford starts just warming up to kiss me deadly or something and all of a sudden right. I'm 16 years old again um, that was really good it, it did pretty well in the festivals but that was the first one it was back when cameras got cheap and you and I were in China talking about what could happen with people having access to gear um, it was produced and directed by Vicky Blue, who was the bass player for the band. Who uh -huh. gone on to be a, she'd started producing and got into the Hollywood scene, and she's now a spectacular cinema, um, still photographer. Really? Um, yeah, she's great. Last thing I did before COVID was go to her, um, her opening at, at uh, Leica, which was a shame because COVID shut it down before she could really sell too much, but beautiful work. Um, and that was this great opportunity to kind of see how it was, but it's music. It's I've been on sets with superstars and you know it that wears off in about 20 seconds but you know our Clapton shows up and puts a guitar on and I'm, I'm the same I'm, I'm exact I am exactly the same way it's like I, I have met almost every world-class director known from the 60s on right and I you know there are certain directors that pretty much impress me like Marty Scorsese holy crap you know uh, unbelievable and, and Spielberg, because he was like the first director that I met when I got to ILM and I'm sitting around in a room with like five other people and we're discussing a project and, you know, uh, it was always and I'm pinching myself, you know, and I'm sitting with Steven Spielberg. But beyond that, you know, nobody really, Robert Wise, you know, no, they, they don't, nothing. But if I meet a musician like Clapton or George Harrison or Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger or any any of my heroes when I was a kid that was a musical icon, I, I'm a bumbling idiot. Yeah, it it overtakes me. And you yeah. know, we lived in I mean I lived in I live in the LA area, you did for a long time. Every now and then you'd run into one at at Trader Joe's. Sure. And I would still just become this yeah. bumbling idiot. So, Ten year old groupie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean absolutely fell into it. There was a time about a year and a half ago I was staying in Pasadena. And I'm in a hotel and I look over and there's a photographer and he's got three or four cameras around his neck and he's and I'm working for Canon at the time and I've got Canon swag on it says Canon somewhere on it. So I walk over and just to see who he is, what he's up to and say, look, hey, I'm with Canon, you know, thanks for what you bought my 401k, thanks you, whatever. And we have this conversation and he's there because he's about to shoot um, the band Chicago in a private um, show where they're sort of... Um, practicing before they go on tour it's really Dan, uh, Danny the drummer. Before, yeah mm -hmm. and says there. why don't you come and you know that night that didn't wear off for weeks right for weeks and I think I was working on a pretty big film project the next day and couldn't no. care less couldn't yeah. care less it just stuck there I, and, I had um, a similar I had a similar experience I, I used to do audio as I said you know for video companies and this is probably in the early, very early 80s, like 1980 or 1981, and I get a phone call from this gal, Queenie Taylor, who works for Bill Graham, and she said, you know, there's a band coming in tonight, and they want to be recorded on video and audio, um, and, um, you know, they'll they'll be there at like 7 o'clock at the old Waldorf, I think it was the club, four cameras, blah, 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 tape machines, okay, great, so we go down, we load in, there's nothing like being in a bar in the middle of the day when it's light. It stinks. It's disgusting. And you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, these large men walk in. They walk around. They check things out. And then 
the Rolling Stones walk in and the Rolling Stones perform for two hours just to the five guys or six guys on the crew, no one else. I, 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 I was fl- I floated out of the building. I, I, there's a cinematographer named um, Stephen Goldblatt, wonderful cinematographer, and he was doing a documentary, uh, not a doc, um, a biopic on James, um, not James Dean, um, James Brown. Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it all, so I don't really remember. But he's doing this biopic, and they're they're having trouble with some lenses that Canon. I think we re- I think they reproduced that shot. It's a great it's a great film. Um, it's really worth seeing. See but the executive producer on that show is um, Mick Jagger. Uh huh. And I got a call saying, "Look, you need to be in Natchez, Mississippi, tomorrow morning. Things are fucked up, and our lenses aren't focusing, and all sorts of things have to happen." Oh, oh. So I fly out on a Saturday. I go to this bank in Natchez on a Sunday, and I spend all day recalibrating the glass. Because it's just, you know, what it is. And the only way to do it was to set it up in this hallway and then put witness marks at every door in this old bank. And it, it took a long time. And um, Stephen is Australian, New Zealand, I forget. But it, I'm confused on his accent a little bit. But I'm adjusting all these things. And all of a sudden, I, this, I feel somebody come up behind me. And it's, I hear, these fucking things are going to work by Monday, right? And I think it's Stephen only because of the accent and I'm a little bit thrown and I turn around and it's Mick Jagger. I mean like two feet away from me because he's the executive producer on the film right. and he's in a bank in Natchez, Mississippi on a Sunday. And oh my God, I mean he's not happy because he's heard that we might not get the shot we need on Monday. Uh. And I can't stop smiling at him and I don't think he <laughs> likes it. <laughs> but yeah, that was a huge moment, huge moment. I think I stammered through something, don't even know what I said. And then he left, and I kept thinking, wow, he's a lot shorter than I thought, and I left it at that. He but, is short, uh, yeah, he's pretty yeah, short. Yeah, he's bigger than life still in my head, but right. at that moment, I was eye to eye with him, and I'm not tall. Right. Yeah, that, that was pretty good. And that, that Chicago night, the night I went to see Chicago, I come in, and I sit down next to, they, he puts me on a couch backstage and says, just sit tight till we start, and then I'll move you up front, the photographer, because he's got some clout. And I sit down, and this guy sits next to me, I swear to God, he looks like a, an 80-year-old dirt farmer. Flannel shirt, pair of jeans, pair of work boots. That's it. And we're having a really nice conversation, genuinely this nice man. And he goes, so what are you doing here? And I go, well, I work for Canon, and you know they're shooting with it, and he invited me to come. And he, had, he had set his hand, he goes, hi, I'm Robbie Krieger. <laughs> I mean, I just had a 10-minute conversation with Robbie. Did, I didn't recognize him, to be honest. I mean, sure. And then 20 minutes later, he's out playing L.A. Woman with the band Chicago to back them up. It was one of those surreal nights. And, you know, it's... We're so lucky, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. It was the amount of um, access we got to that kind of stuff. So, I mean, never in my life as a kid growing up in Portland, Maine, would I think I I would have a conversation with Robbie Krieger and not even know who he was until he told me. But, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Boy, he can still play, too. Didn't miss miss a lick. Didn't miss a lick. It was really cool. Although I'm sure he can play that song in his mind. Right. So, so, yeah, I think he played... um, 25 for 64 the the chicago song and then the chicago also played um you know and then they're um they brought on a new keyboard player who was the keyboard player for iron butterfly who played a little bit of inagata devita it was a really interesting mix it was quite the night so all right so i would like to do this forever but i probably shouldn't 
because uh, we're like an hour into this. Um, I'm sure we can edit. So let me um, let me say thank you so much for doing this. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for indulging me on the last section. Um, oh, just, just to talk a little bit. Um, I hope I get to be within six feet of you at some point in 2020. Yeah, um, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it really would be. I'd like to be in six feet of with anybody, anybody. at this point. <laughs> and there better be music. So uh, really appreciate it. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on and thank you again hey why don't you come up to, to santa barbara taj mahal is playing on june i think it's 9th 9 uh, 2021 at the libero theater we'll be there taj Look, mahal. hey this is what i do for a living now the schedule is mine so i'll be <laughs> i'll be there so yeah right. actually we're yeah so we'll definitely get in touch uh, all right thank you so much for for coming on i really appreciate That's, it good to see you Bye. Okay, everybody, we will be right back, and that'll do it for Scott Ross. Thanks a lot. I'd love to talk to Scott for hours, but that's all the time we get. So thank you for sharing your time with us. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe, please take a minute now. It's so important to the success of this podcast. Also, I'd love to hear from you. So check out our Facebook page, The Art of the Image with Tim Smith. Got questions or a guest idea? That's the place to let us know. And if it's your first time with us, you can check out our past shows on Apple Podcast, YouTube, or your favorite podcast provider. Till next time, be safe.